Thank you. You may be seated. We are thrilled to have Gretchen here to share with us. Um, I have really enjoyed the past several months binging on her podcast. I had to travel home to my parents' house, which is almost three hours away, and I put them, I sped them up to, I don't know if it was time and a half or two, twice the speed, and listened to them all the way down and all the way home, and I was able to cram in a whole lot. It was, was really great to have that time, and I've really enjoyed those. Um, we've been praying for months that God would give her the words that he wants her to share with us, and I think we're ready for you, Gretchen. All right. Good evening to all of you. I am Gretchen Ronovic. Um, I come here from Fergus Falls, Minnesota. I'll tell you a little bit about myself so you kind of have a place of reference. Um, I did not grow up on a farm, but I married a farmer. So we have, uh, my husband farms about 4,000 acres, a big farm out um, in western Minnesota. His name is Knut, so we're a very Norwegian farm. And um, we have six children. Our oldest is 19. She's a sophomore in college now, and our youngest is seven, uh, three boys and three girls. So that is a little bit about me. I, um, I've been really excited for this event and all the work that this church has been putting into it. I wanted to open and, and share a little bit about one time I, um, I awkwardly went viral like, like an infection. And I was on Twitter back when it was called Twitter and I put something just off the cuff out there and the algorithms just ran with it. It wasn't like a, a really cool tweet with rich theology or, or something that I had really poured into. Um, but this ended up getting shared thousands of times and someone took a screenshot of it and put it over on Facebook and then that was shared thousands of times. And then it was picked up by Today Parenting on the, on the Today Show. And they put it on their website. And I started getting messages from friends on a daily basis for a couple of weeks, maybe two months, saying, oh my goodness, you, you know, I saw you on this enormous page. You've gone viral. And I'm like, yeah, like an infection. My words are everywhere. It's great. And um, then a screenshot got started being shared over on Instagram, and now marketing companies like Burt's Bees started picking up and putting it on their webpage. And I, I just had to step away from my phone and just be like, this is, this is weird. So if you want to know the weird thing that, that I had said, so I just kind of did a, not a pretend conversation, it was kind of a conglomeration of several conversations I had had where a young mom comes up to me and says, how do you do it all? And I look at her and I say, I don't. And she said, but it, it kind of looks like you're doing it all. And I'm like, no, not at all. And she's like, so, so how do you do it? And I said, I, I rotate things that I'm failing at. Sometimes the dishes don't get done. Sometimes the writing doesn't get done. And sometimes I just never see my friends. Like, it's just... I'm rotating all the things that I'm doing wrong and try not to make too many of them drop. 
And this, this wasn't from one conversation, this was from dozens of conversations. Um, so often when I spoke at women's conferences, um, at a retreat or in MOPS groups, um, some meeting like that, and I was asked these questions of how do you do it, and I kept saying, I don't. Like, I lose my temper with my kids. They're wild and slightly feral, and this is not what you think it is. Um, don't put me on a pedestal. I, I kind of miss the old days when, you know, the farmhouse would just have a parlor, like just one room that you had to keep clean. So when company came in, you could be like, let's go to the clean room and sit down. Um, there's this illusion of balance that we all have as we rotate the things that we fail at. We feel like we should be able to juggle it all. We are constantly on the search for new methods or new systems for us to get our act together, finally. And I am guilty of picking up every single new planner that I know will totally revolutionize my life. And as believers, we often look to the Bible for that balance. We try to use God's law to live our lives out and figure it all out. But here's the thing. God spells it out first thing in the Bible. We cannot achieve balance. In fact, we have fallen. We fell. We don't need balance. We need to be lifted up. And I think often we separate our theology from practical application. We nod and agree. You know, Jesus, uh, we agree with Jesus. We agree he died on the cross when that was accomplished. But now let's get practical. Now what do we do? How do we grow? Let's make a plan. And we quickly move past the cross and into the practical living in our lives, and we start treating the Holy Spirit as, as someone that we need to kind of guide and coach, like our, our lucky charm that we're just carrying with us, that he will enable us. If we just keep him with us, we can be more than conquerors. And I'm going to read a passage from 1 Thessalonians um, chapter 5 verses 16 through 20. It says, Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God. In Christ Jesus, for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. But test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. I have this passage um, printed in the dedication of my book that you guys got. And I, I dedicated it to my friend, Sonia, um, who you guys probably don't know. She is a missionary in Chad, Africa. And years ago, uh, we graduated high school together. We're very dear friends. We went on a weekend trip to a Christian conference um, for, for mothers, a mom conference. She was a seminary. Um, her husband was in seminary at the time, seminary wife. I was a farmer's wife. And our kids were about the same age. 
and both of us were kind of sensing this call into ministry. And she confided in me at the time that she and her husband were discussing moving to Chad. And I was trying to decide if I wanted to take my writing more public, in a public ministry focused way, instead of to just friends and family. And she was counting the cost of what that would mean for her children and her family to be so exposed. And honestly, so was I. And on a certain night at the conference, I remember we were headed back to our hotel room and we were processing everything we learned, um, which was good stuff, but we were trying to um, look at it with, with law and gospel distinctions. Okay, what part are we to do and what part is God doing here? We were trying to dissect that a little bit. We know that there are various purposes for God's law, and one of them is that God's law, his good and beautiful law, shows us everything that we lack. It shows us that we are fallen. And then we have the gospel, which is Jesus Christ completing the work of the law on our behalf and proclaiming that it is finished. We are in Christ because of the work of Christ, not because we do something special for that. But God still tells us to do stuff. Like, what do we do with that? And that, that was our discussion. And we discussed the wording for a long time. And, and we decided to say that God invites us to participate as redeemed, as, as his children. But we are never contributing to what he's doing. We can participate, but we can't contribute. That is all him. When, when we are adopted into his family, we, we can be a part of the family business as, as our vocation but it is all him. Well, Sani went to Africa and I started writing and through the miracle of the internet, we were able to message back and forth still just as often as when she was in the States. And when I was writing and researching for this book on spiritual disciplines, I had, I had stacks of books on spiritual disciplines I was researching through. And, um, and they were all written by very scholarly pastoral men and they were focused on what each one of the disciplines accomplished and how to do each one of them correctly. And there was this gaping hole in my research. None of these guys, as godly as they were, talked about how to deal with babies hanging off of you when you're trying to do any of it. Um, you know, I would look at like, oh, look, a chapter on the spiritual discipline of silence and solitude. Like how, like sign me up, but where, how does that happen exactly? So then I started researching books and articles directed toward women. And since my vocation um, is as a mother, I'm just like, I have no problem having people speak directly to me, but like, I got to figure this out. I'm okay with that. And what I found was this wide spectrum of approaches. Um, and really none of them addressed law and gospel distinctions or talked about justification or sanctification. It was all, there was a spectrum. On one hand, there was this spectrum of people saying, reading your Bible every day is important. The Bible says pray continually. Are you praying continually? You can't just read one verse a day and call yourself a Christian. How are you training up your children? There were long discussions on whether or not you should read your Bible alone or with your children. 
Lots of guilt that you must get up before your children every day to spend time with the Lord, or your children might all turn into heathens. Make sure your children see you in the word. So like you should probably do it before, but also you want them to know so that they can model it, but also don't neglect your children. And also if you have to correct them as you're reading your Bible, maybe you shouldn't yell at them. You should like very gently correct them. And um, apparently it's not super godly to impatiently say, quiet down and leave me alone, I'm trying to be spiritual. And then there's this theological dilemma is of like, I had some mornings of like, is it okay to like put on SpongeBob SquarePants so that I can spend a couple minutes in prayer, but does that like balance out the good and the bad? How does that work? And the other side of the spectrum said your vocation right now is mothering. Don't stress about daily devotions. You know what? God understands. This is your time to serve. God will be there when your kids get older. He's not going anywhere. Sure, you haven't heard a sermon in three years because your child screams bloody murder in the nursery and won't stop crying in church, but God gets it. Grace, grace. And I'd look at that message and say, but I'm starving. I am starving. Are you telling me I have to wait for my six children to get older before I get the word? Because I'm starving. I have a, a friend near me who's, uh, she, they're dairy farmers and she has 13 children. And she's like, yeah, at this point, it's not a stage of my life, it's just my life. Just like from here on out. This grace for the season argument was really soldier on for a few years without spiritual support. God will be waiting for you on the other side when it's all over. It was a message masquerading as grace, but really a theology of works on the other side of the spectrum. And in every book I read, I thought, would this advice for growing in Christ work for Sonia in Africa, could she teach the women there the same principles that I'm learning here? Is this an American thing? Is this a global thing? How does this work? It was constantly in my mind, could she use this in Africa? Do we have a different theology here than we have over there? I find when we read passages of 1 Thessalonians, that I just read, we focus on our work and we make a list. Okay, so we have to pray continually. Obviously, we have to be happy all the time. We can make a, let's make a principal checklist and we'll upload it on Pinterest. We'll make it really cute. This is gonna be great. And the verse that just wraps it all up and leaves me in my tracks is where it says, now may the grace, may, now may God of, sorry, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our lord jesus christ he who calls you is faithful he will surely do it and i know we we all agree that and understand that it is jesus who justifies us and and christ will glorify us when we get in heaven when we we don't have to worry about sin anymore but that middle part is where we wrestle where we feel where we're temporarily both saints and sinners and what do we do with that and how do we grow? Does, is that part up to us? 
but it says here, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Uh, when I was in Bible school, one of the first care packages I requested from my mom was a little catechism book that I had studied with my grandpa of various theological truths about God. My grandpa was a, a church planter and missionary, and, and that was something we did on my, our weekends together as we would study through various doctrinal things. And it, was, it shaped me, and it was wonderful. And so when I was in Bible school, I, want, I was thinking, like, okay, this is written in this book. Can you send it up? And so if you have never been through one of these uh, catechisms before, whatever denomination, it's usually question and answers. There, someone asks a question, and then there's an answer that you, you memorize or you talk through. And um, so here were some of the questions that I looked at when I was researching for this book. One of the questions is, one, what is the work of the Holy Spirit? Answer, the work of the Holy Spirit is to call, gather, enlighten, sanctify, and preserve. And then the next question is, how do you listen to the call of the Holy Spirit? The answer is, I listen to the call of the Holy Spirit by repenting and believing the gospel of Jesus. And then naturally, the next question is, what does it mean to repent? I repent when I agree and feel deeply sorry that I have not yet kept and cannot keep God's law. And when I receive the good news that Jesus died for me. I have not kept and I cannot keep God's law. I need Jesus. That, that's repentance. It's, it's not, um, Martin Luther didn't define it as turning from good works to bad, or from bad works to good works, though oftentimes that is the fruit of it. It's actually repentance is turning from depending on us to depending on God. I need him. So this is important as we look at spiritual disciplines because while we wrestle with what we have done and what we have left undone, the Holy Spirit is aiming to root us in what Christ has done. That is the goal. That is his goal as he works in us. And I found that when I want to grow in Christ, the more I look to myself as the source of that growth, the more exhausted I feel, the more discouraged I feel. I can't keep up. I can't do it. But when I look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of my faith, and when I see that the Trinity has been at work to redeem me, not just legally through justification, but wholly every part of me, sanctified in him, my spiritual growth looks completely different. No longer am I just trying to do what's expected of me. I can look at this extreme over here and say, your obedience to do all these things like read 30 minutes a day, though the Bible technically never gives a time frame, but if you were a good Christian, you would really do that. I can say my justification is found in the obedience of Christ and my sanctification is found in the obedience of Christ. I contribute none of my obedience to the state of things. I want Christ and Christ alone because my works are ragged. And I can look to the other extreme and say, no, God isn't waiting for me on the other side of whatever season I'm in. God is with me 
He never leaves me. He is for the weak. He is for the unable. I am blessed because I am poor in spirit, because God works very well in my weakness. It's my God-given inheritance to go to God whenever I want to, and I don't need to ask permission from anyone to do that. Jesus told Martha when she was criticizing Mary for not helping in the kitchen. Ironically, she didn't criticize Lazarus for not helping in the kitchen, but she was criticizing Mary for sitting and listening to Jesus. And Jesus defended her, saying Mary had chosen the better portion, and it will not be taken from her. And that has been a comfort to me many times. That won't be taken from me, no matter the circumstances that I'm in. It's my inheritance. It's my birthright. This Christian life is hard, I think in part because the gospel message does not seem very practical. We are looking for the five-step plan. I want some instruction now. We want a formula. We want, we want a law to follow. And, and God is kind of like, yeah, we, we tried that, and, and I, I, I needed to come. And so I'm just going to keep staying here with you. I, I'm a, I like to be an achiever and a pe- perfectionist, and I would think to myself, how many verses should I memorize? How much should I read? How much should I give to the church? When is it enough? And as I comb through scriptures looking for answers to this question of enough, I found a glaring lack of instruction. What I found was the word always and continually. And I finally realized That's because the work of the sanctification, the work of growth, the work of the Holy Spirit is to never leave us. By ourselves, we are never enough. In in Christ, we are always enough. And God stubbornly does not allow anything in between those two. It's always and continually because he is the one doing the verbs and he is never stopping. But again, I ask, what is a manageable plan? And finally, I had to ask what my manageable plan really is, something I can do independently of God, something we can manage ourselves, because who knows if the Holy Spirit's going to show up that day. You know, he's a wind. He blows around, a little finicky, and you you never know what's going on. So I would ask for more law and more specifics, and he kept giving me his spirit. And I was like, what do I do with this? How do I wield this power? The fact that the Holy Spirit is not controlled by us does not mean he's unreliable or he's fickle. The Holy Spirit humbles. He brings us low so we can see Christ. He unfolds comfortably reveals the lack in me so I can cling all the more to him. He helps me see the value in Christ. And I I fight against this because I would rather build up my own repertoire, my own accomplishments. And then I would say, well, you can do daily devotions because you have God's spirit. And then I found out, what if God's spirit is disciplining me to pay attention to one child who is struggling that day? What if God's spirit is teaching me to let go of some unhealthy expectations for how much I can do on how little sleep? What if God is asking 
me to step away from a ministry so that someone else can step up. As he's bringing me to a place of quiet for a while, who am I to presume what God's spirit is trying to teach me? He knows my heart better than me. He is constantly teaching me to remember him and remember his works. And I'm not great at developing a lesson plan for myself because I don't know what I've forgotten. I don't know what I don't know. So I've learned to look at these spiritual disciplines, which I loosely define as things that God has called us as Christians to do. And I look at them like a child kind of curiously trying to examine how does this work and what is this for? I have learned that rest is teaching me that I am not God and the world does not revolve around me. I do not cause the sun to rise or set. I can be still and watch God at work. I've learned that Bible reading, to hear the words of God rather than examine my spirituality through my own feelings. I've learned that in prayer, I have access to the ear of God. I mean, stop and think about that. Through prayer, we have access to the ear of God. I've learned in fasting that God is sufficient even though I lack. I've learned through confession that there's no point to hide my sin from God. He brings it to light so that it can be forgiven. I've learned in generosity of how God is generous with me. I've learned through lament that God never asks me to pretend things are fine when they're not fine. He won't leave me when I'm hurt or angry or depressed. Through lament, I've learned the unwavering grace despite circumstance. And in discipling others, I've learned that the most precious thing I have to give in this life is recalling the works of God to others. You know, about uh, 12 years ago, um, 10, 12 years ago, back before I was writing um, devotionals and um, Christian content, um, I was actually writing knitting patterns. I did a lot of knitting and I, I put it out there and um, and I had a little blog that I would, you know, share what was going on in the farm and share what I was knitting that week and share what God was teaching me. And then some of my knitting patterns got really big and all of a sudden I was getting a lot of traffic on my blog um, from people who had bought my knitting patterns and wanted to know what I was working on. But most of them were not Christians. They were from all over the world, maybe 40 countries. And... Um, there was a little map on my, my data thing, and I'm like, where are these people coming from? And it was, it was the knitting patterns. And after a couple of years, I got an email from a woman who lived down in Australia. And she had grown up in a Muslim family um, in England. And then her parents ended up getting divorced, and her father had custody of her and moved her down to Australia when he got a new job there. And he was, he got more and more conservative in Islam. And um, as she went to college, she recognized, she's like, I don't, I don't think God would treat women this way. This does not, this does not make sense. I don't think Allah would do this. And so she left the, um, the Islam faith at that time, but she didn't know what faith to go to. She still believed in God. She was just like, but that's not him. And so in the meantime, she had met a guy, um, a, a boyfriend, and they had a child together. 
and they lived together and their child was about 18 months old when she wrote me. And she, she told me her story and she said, Gretchen, I, I'm trying to figure out how to raise my son. I, I love the moralism of Islam. I, I love learning to do good things. I, I loved all the prayers and I, I loved all of that. Um, and so like, I wanna instill some sort of moral law with my son, but I, I don't pray to a God because I have not met this God yet. And she said, I, um, I've been reading your, um, your writing for two years now on your blog. And I've decided that I don't know who God is, but you know who God is. So could you give him this list of things that I've been doing and ask him if it's enough? And I, I at first didn't know what to say. I, ju I just cried for her. Um, I was able to share the gospel with her. We, we studied John for a little bit. I don't, I don't know where she's now. Um, but what's interesting is that I get a lot of emails like that from Christian women too. Am I doing enough? Is God pleased with this enough? I don't, I don't know where my standing is. I'm, I'm trying, but I'm rotating all the things I'm failing at, and I feel like I'm going nowhere. Every spiritual discipline God has instructed us in is glaringly never telling us how much, how often, how long, besides always and continually, every one of them is to teach us our dependence on Christ. To turn that into a work for our spiritual growth is almost like anti-remembering of like taking the reins back from him and saying, I got it from here. All of a sudden feeling like my works are ragged, are not enough, are insufficient, is exactly where I'm supposed to be. Not because God wants me to feel bad, but because God wants me to be rooted in truth. He is enough, he is sufficient. I love the first chapter of 1 John kind of goes over this circular conversation that, um, Come to the light, come to the truth. Let God cleanse you from your sin. Of course, don't sin, but if you sin, confess your sin and the blood of Jesus will cleanse you. Stay in the truth, stay in the light. But it's this battle to stay in the light. I am either satisfied too easily in my own works or discouraged because I don't do what I set out to do and I make it about me. Um, back when my, my fifth child was only six months old, so that would be 10 years ago, um, on a really sunny day in July in the farm when the cor corn was really green and really tall. Um, I don't know if you guys have ever driven out in farm areas, but when the corn is really tall, it's really hard to see other cars. It's like a tunnel. And I was bringing the kids to VBS at our church and to drop off the older kids for the day. And I, it's, I was going through a two-way stop. I was on the big road. I had the right of way, um, had all five kids in the car with me. And 
Another car blew right through the stop sign. I didn't see them because of the corn, but they assumed I'm in the middle of the country. No one's here going to see me anyway, and they T-boned our car, and we ended up in the ditch. And um, my kids were fine. Um, none of us ended up having to go to the hospital that day. Um, but it became apparent very quickly that I had very severe whiplash and was dealing with chronic pain, basically, from then on of, of migraines. There was about the first six months um, I was put on disability where I just couldn't do anything. I couldn't move, and I had a nursing baby and trying to take care of my five kids and one of them nursing. And when harvest came around and my husband started his 20-hour shifts out in the field six days a week, um, I went into this deep depression. And my family calls it, you know, our dark years of when my pain was just not under control yet. And we were still figuring out how to do that. And I remember during that time, I was so numb, I could barely pray. And I would just, if I did pray, I would just be like, God, I don't know what to say. All I know is you're going to have to take care of this because I have no idea how to move forward in this. And I would go to um, physical therapy appointments and chiropractor appointments. We were trying everything. And I would have to haul that car seat and the kids, and one of my kids was a bolter and just trying to go through. And then my kids would be there as I'm going through all these painful treatments to try to get my pain under control and trying to put on a happy face. And what was interesting was people from my church would randomly bring over meals or my husband's cousins would come over and just weed my garden. And things just got taken care of. And I didn't even stop to praise God because I'm like, well, of course he is. That's what he's supposed to do, um, which is not a, a horrible response. But I was just too numb. I, I was just in it. And I remember about a year or two later when we, the, the pain started to get under management and I was able to function as a mom and a wife and, and all of that again, um, I remember praying one morning. I said, my Bible open, and I was journaling my prayers so I didn't fall asleep. I like to write them out. And, um, and I remember writing out, I'm finally getting better. Don't worry, God. I'm not going to need you as much moving forward. And what was so exposed to me as I saw that written out early in the morning was my goal was to get more independent of God. And his goal was to get me more dependent on him. That my goal was completely wrong. This, this control tendency of I have to manage this was because I didn't trust whatever he was going to do. Because he's going to do what he's going to do. And I, I, was, I was scared. And it was in that moment that I, I had a total shift of I can come to you for anything. I can't ask too much. I can, help for, I can ask for help getting up in the morning. I can ask for this kid's tantrum. I can ask for this frustrating decision my husband and I are trying to make. I, I can ask, God, I have no idea what's for supper. Um, it changed everything 
when I saw dependence as the goal. One of the things I've learned, and we'll talk about this a little bit more tomorrow during my study of spiritual disciplines, is how we as the modern American church have an obsession with individual spirituality. We like to keep it just Jesus and me. It's all about me. I know in my own denomination, um, here in, we were kind of a reaction, um, again, a very Norwegian denomination, um, ethnically, but the church in Norway was very um, formulaic where you go to church. I've talked with some of my friends in Norway and they're like, yeah, you go to church four times and then you're good. You go for your baptism, you go for your confirmation, you go for your wedding and you go for your funeral. That those are the four times that you go. And, um, and my denomination was kind of a reaction against that saying, no, it's gotta be personal. It's gotta be a personal relationship. But what I found is I took even that to the extreme and say, okay, instead of having the four thing list over here, I have my own list of things that I have to get done over here. I went from erring on the side of having a church checklist to having a personal checklist where it's just my works. And it's this false dichotomy of what matters more, church or individual. What matters? the works of Christ in his death and resurrection. The Holy Spirit has given us as his gift the promise to sanctify us. And the Apostles' Creed, which I know Rich Mullins has turned that into a song that I believe, I don't know if you guys know that one, but it says, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection and the body and the life everlasting. The Holy Spirit doesn't pit individual against the whole body. He just does it all. He makes it all encompassing. He gives us both individual attention and communal support. And so you'll find in all of the spiritual disciplines, there is an individual element to them, but there's also a communal element to them. You are not doing any of them alone. You are doing that within a body. I'll never forget when I finished writing my book, I edited it and I turned it in and I took a little rest. And while I came to church to be fed, I, I didn't have time alone with God for a little while. I was burnt out. This was in the midst of COVID and I was just tired. I needed to let it sit. And once you know, after a couple of weeks, Satan started using that time of rest to condemn me. And I just kept thinking, who do you think you are? You wrote this book on spiritual disciplines. How long has it been since you've opened your Bible? What are you studying now, huh? Which book? Do you even know? You're a total fraud. Now I finally decided to text one of my friends and confess I've been having trouble getting back into the word. I didn't know where to start. And before I could get into all my reasons justifying of why I had not been opening my Bible outside of Sunday, she texted back, isn't this, uh, isn't this cool what God showed me today? And she copy and pasted the text that she had read that day and just said, this is what I, something that I saw and it was really interesting. And she didn't attach my confession to my identity. She didn't condemn me. She didn't gasp in horror. She didn't say, it's fine who hasn't, you haven't read God's word, who hasn't today? Don't beat yourself up about it, nobody's perfect. She didn't say any of that. 
No, I said I was struggling to get into the word and she graciously gave it to me. And she's like, here you go, drought's over. It was like just that simple. God put us in a body of believers for a reason. I think if anything the last couple years have taught us is this idea of just Jesus and me doesn't work so well because he designed us to be together and people around us in church are not impediments to our spiritual growth. They're some of the means that God uses to grow us. We'll talk a little bit more about that tomorrow. I would like to end with this passage that has been a constant encouragement to me. It's one that my grandpa and all of our weekends together, we studied. He was obsessed with the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. I don't know if there's any person in your life that whenever you hear a certain scripture passage, you hear that person's voice in your head because they said it so many times. Um, that this is one of them. In the chapter before this, the author names a great cloud of witnesses, of people who witnessed firsthand the faithfulness of God and people who did great things, not because of their works, but because of their faith in the completed work in Christ. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God, of the throne of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for these women and all that it took for them to get here, all the hoops that they had to jump through and the days that they have had Lord, I pray that this would, uh, weekend would be a time of rest and renewal and encouragement. And Lord, I pray that you would just fix our eyes on you, that we would see your glory and your work in us, that we who are weak and weary and heavy laden can be given rest. In your name, amen.